0: Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. I'm delighted to say that we have the old team together today, sort of. I'm in Cambridge. Helen Thompson is in London. Chris Brooke is in Oxford. We're going to be talking about British politics beyond the crisis. Where is Labour heading? Where is Brexit heading? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Improve the quality of your solitude with a subscription to the LRB. They'll send you exceptional analysis of the politics, economics, sociology and science behind the crisis and reportage from around the world, but also gloriously unrelated, richly immersive distraction from the world's best authors and critics writing about history and philosophy, art and technology, fiction and poetry. Just go to lrb.me talk and get your first 12 issues for just £12. That's lrb.me slash talk. Just before we start with Helen and Chris, we wanted to remind you, if you are looking for extra episodes, if you've got more podcast listening time, We do have another podcast at the moment, History of Ideas. It's me talking about the big ideas behind modern politics. There are now eight episodes and more to come. If you want to get those, do please subscribe to Talking Politics History of Ideas. You can find History of Ideas wherever you find Talking Politics. There's a new episode out this week on Friday. On Talking Politics, we're trying to focus on the current crisis, but also to take a step back. And that's what we're doing today. One way to try and think outside of the bubble of the current crisis is a counterfactual if the EE referendum had been won by Remain, and therefore presumably David Cameron had remained as Prime Minister. He said he would only serve a second term, so who knows who would have succeeded him. But the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, which wouldn't have been repealed, would have meant that the general election would have happened last Thursday. That was five years since the 2015 general election. Presumably, again, Jeremy Corbyn would have been the Labour leader. That would have been his general election. They would have given him at least one to fight, having survived the leadership challenge. So maybe it would have been George Osborne against Jeremy Corbyn. It's a completely different universe from the one we're in now, leaving aside the pandemic, which is Boris Johnson against Keir Starmer. Chris, do you have any feeling yet? We, we've we got a pretty clear idea of the ways in which Keir Starmer is presentationally going to be different from Jeremy Corbyn. Do you have a feel yet for, there's not an election coming for a long time, but for the kind of Labour Party that he's looking to create? Is there a gap now between Starmer and Corbynism?
1: I think there is a gap. Starmer made a lot of Corbyn-friendly noises during the leadership campaign. And he did get a lot of people who voted for Jeremy Corbyn in 2015 and 2016 to support him in the recent leadership contest. But he never presented himself as a thoroughgoing Corbynite. He never presented himself as close to momentum, close to the the distinctive institutions of the Labour Party in in the Corbyn era. And nobody voted for him because they thought it was continuity Corbynism, except in certain respects on a policy level. I mean, that's to say what Labour showed in the 2017 general election is that it could move substantially to the left of where it had been in the Blair, Brown, Miliband era, and not necessarily uh, haemorrhage support. And Starmer has taken advantage of that to signal that uh, the Labour Party policy offer in future will be closer to what it was in 2017 and 2019 this doesn't involve a turning back the clock to 2005 2010 2015 but apart from that apart from that substantial move to the left Labour's now much more recognisably social democratic party than it was in the new labour period beyond that i think we are going to see party management return to something that is more familiar for example from the era of Ed Miliband. And from that point of view, one of the key things that has happened is that on the day that Starmer was elected leader, it also turned out that left wing candidates had lost the various elections and by elections that were taking place for positions on Labour's National Executive Committee. And Starmer has a chance to take control of the administration of the party, the running of the party, the management of the party via the NEC that I don't think he expected, and I don't think many people on the left expected. And that, I think, is going to be quite important in the months to come. We'll see what happens in the main NEC elections that will take place around conference time. And it may be that Momentum or the left of the party gets its act together and manages to narrow or eliminate the leadership's majority on the NEC. But it may be that uh, Starmer consolidates his hold, and then he'll be a much more powerful figure within the party than he would have been otherwise.
0: We're trying to think about this not immediately in the context of the COVID pandemic, but even that phrase conference time sounds a little bit the world we've left behind. I can't really imagine what the conference is going to be like this year. Do you think that that broad policy shift to the left can be separated out from the party management, especially when you think about the strategy that the Starmer team are going to adopt over the next three to four years, which presumably is to win back the seats that were lost in 2019, not just the red wall, but a whole range of seats and a whole range of constituencies where people who were traditional Labour voters have now switched to becoming temporarily or maybe for longer Tories. Is that Corbyn policy offer not itself going to have to change? I mean, there are various aspects to it. I mean, one of which is the emphasis on University graduates, tuition fees, that part of politics, and Helen's talked about this a lot, that's been so dominant over the last five years. Do you think that the, the people around Starmer are thinking about the people that they have to appeal to and not thinking that
1: that package has to change? I think you're right that the question of higher education funding is a complex one. I was thinking more generally not so much the particular policies like uh, university tuition fees, but the general feel of the Corbyn offer, social democracy without apologies. I mean, that's the huge shift from the even Ed Miliband often came across as extremely apologetic, extremely tentative, in terms of the, the way he presented the more redistributive, the more social democratic aspects of the Labour manifesto. And Labour has a confidence about talking in a more overtly social democratic language than it's had for a very long time. And at parts of the right of the party that are very unhappy with that, and part of that right went off to join the um, Change UK, or whatever it was called. And over time, although the parliamentary party was never happy with Jeremy Corbyn at all, uh, there was a lot less resistance to the general direction of travel in the 2017 and 2019 manifestos. It went further than some MPs would have liked, but I don't think that that wasn't where the fight in the Labour Party was. The fight of the last five years has not been a narrow fight about policy. I think those thoughts extend into thinking about the Red Wall, thinking about the work Labour has to do to win back support uh, in Midlands, across the North, uh, in Wales, and so on. That's partly about policy, but it's partly about other things too. And this is where Jeremy Corbyn's personal ratings mattered, that an awful lot of voters didn't like him, they didn't trust him, they didn't think he had the kind of qualities they associated with a prime minister. And part of Starmer's work is to not let him fall into the difficulties that Corbyn fell into on that that front. We're seeing very tentative evidence from the polling that the great British public hasn't immediately taken against him. Again, these are extraordinary times, so it's not clear how we should interpret the numbers. But I think we are going to see that kind of safety first public presentation that Starmer has been trying out in recent weeks. Uh, I think that goes along with thinking about public policy. But there may be issues about, I mean, university finance is a a, a fraught issue more generally. The question of university tuition fees is also bound up with the general issue of people in their 20s and 30s being still heavily in debt and very disadvantaged vis-a-vis the property market and so on. So there are all kinds of issues uh, to think about in terms of how Labour is going to present itself so it can hold on to the support among younger voters that it has. But I think that involves a broader range of policies than narrowly thinking about how much is it going to cost to go to university and who's going to pay the bill.
2: I think that it's too soon to tell really how far Starmer is going to stick with the social democratic position. And I think it's a bit more than a social democratic position that in economic terms anyway that um, Corbyn had taken Labour to. And I think one of the crucial questions is... is what Starmer is going to do about the Green New Deal aspects of the late Corbyn project, because obviously that wasn't really part of the Corbyn project to begin with, but it had very much become so by the time of the the 2019 election. And in many ways, the Green New Deal in response to what was presented as the climate change emergency was the narrative that basically tied together the economic stance that Corbyn ended up taking in 2019. So we need to spend, the narrative went, lots and lots of money, and we need to borrow lots of money. And it's essential that we do that because the emergency that we face is existential. So there can't possibly be any reason to worry about the scale of the borrowing required because it's simply essential beyond any doubt. it's slightly simplifies what the narrative was, but I think that that was the gist of it, that the big state financed by borrowing was required by the the Green New Deal. And I'm not seeing anything yet that makes me think that that is where Starmer really wants to go. Now, obviously, we can't tell because everything's been dominated by the, the virus emergency. But if you look at some of the things that he said, some of the appointments that he's made, he seems in some sense, keener on a politics that gives a a higher return, if you like, to Labour. I mean that in an economic sense, not in the party sense. A a politics that's been more about driving wages up for the the least well paid. And that isn't necessarily... In fact, I don't think it's the same politics at all as a fundamentally Green New Deal-orientated social democratic politics. I think the other thing that's the case, and this is where I think that we can see that Starmer has made a decision... And that is is that he's going to let, it looks like anyway for the moment, he's going to let the Brexit issue go. And that takes him into a very different space than the one that Corbyn could ever be in. Obviously, Corbyn did not want his politics and his leadership of the Labour Party to be about Brexit, but he had no choice that that's what it became because it became the overwhelming issue. Brexit, that is, became the overwhelming issue from 2016 to the end of last year. But in Starmer saying that he essentially accepts not extending the transition, which is the position that's been articulated from him in the last week or so. I think that draws a line for Labour under Brexit. And that is a strategic judgment that he's made. Now, you could argue that some pressure may mount up as the deadline for deciding about the extension in June gets ever closer and that he comes in internal pressure within the party to reopen that judgment. But I think he's signalled his intention quite clearly in saying Labour needs to leave Brexit behind. So can we come
0: back to Brexit in a second? Because I want to pick up on what you said about because it's a striking phrase that one of the ways in which Starmer might be repositioning the Labour Party is to make it the party of Labour. And that does get to the theme that a lot of people have commented on about not just the British Social Democratic Party, but centre-left parties around the world, which is that increasingly they have struggled to hold on to voters who think of themselves as the workers and have become more and more identified with students, with university graduates and with the young. And Of course, those people are workers too in a different context. But that does then get to that, at a very specific level, to that tuition fees question, but more broadly to where the priorities are. Because the Corbyn project, as well as being a Green New Deal project, was a young people and students project. That's how I read it. And I felt all along that um, the danger of that was that it got the numbers wrong. There weren't enough of those people to win an election with. And are you sensing a a shift, therefore, on that front too? I mean, Chris talked about having to sort of square the circle of policies that still kept those people on board while broadening the base. But isn't it not possible that this is an actual trade-off here? That moving back to being a workers' party does move you to some extent away from being a students' party.
2: Yeah, it does, but I think there are two different issues here. The first is is like what to do about um, students themselves and the financing of of higher education. And I think that at that point, you know, there is a trade off between: are you concerned about workers or are you concerned about students? But once you have this number of people as we do in this country going to university and acquiring a lot of debt to do so and once a significant proportion of those people are not going to end up in well paid salaried jobs then i think the question of the separation between workers and students young people kind of starts to to fall away because you're going to end up well we do we have ended up with lots of people in not particularly well-paying jobs and having to service lots of debt or in principle anyway having to service lots of debt and in practice often the taxpayer actually ended up picking the bill up because the debt can't be paid. So actually you do want those people to be able to earn more money in their employment than they are presently doing because the consequences of not doing so is to end up back on the tax bill. So I think that that from the point of view of the, the Labour Party, that there's quite a lot of mileage still in the graduate precariat part of the the Labour force and making an appeal to, to those people and seeing that they might have common interests with those who haven't been to university where wages are concerned. But I think it probably does mean leaving behind the, this is about students and the issue of tuition fees and saying, which was clearly crucially important in 2017, because Labour actually made fewer spending commitments in 2017 than it did in 2019. And really, the one of abolishing tuition fees was pretty much um, centrepiece of that 2017 manifesto. I just can't see Starmer retaining that as anything anything like as important as it became then.
0: Clearly, something that is going on at the moment is, and we don't know how long it will last, but it could be a permanent shift, which is the nature of labour or work is changing. I mean, at the moment, there's a whole set of unprecedented arrangements in place with the state subsidising people's wages, their income, but also encouraging various forms of part-time working, staggered working, I mean, a much more managed workforce and a much more managed labour market in some respects, things that the Labour Party in recent years has been in favour of, Some people have said that the Tory party is doing things that um, even the Labour party might have balked at a few years ago. And at the same time, at the present moment, the Labour party's narrow political message is to take the side of workers on grounds of safety, to side with the unions on issues of safe return to work, employees getting protection from their employers, teachers, for instance, not being forced back into schools without protections in place. And that does potentially cut across all workers. I mean, it's potentially quite a broadly appealing message. So does the current crisis give Starmer an opportunity to put together a a message that does cut across some of the divides I was just talking to Helen about?
1: I think it does. And I think that those issues about unions, about workplaces, about safety and so on, they go right to the top of government policy making at the moment, the Trade Union Congress, I think, is more influential on government policy than it's been for a very, very long time. And the the centerpiece of Rishi Sunak's furlough scheme was uh, hammered out in conversations with the TUC. And just this week, we've seen the government apparently briefing to journalists overnight that the wage support will be lowered from 80% to 60%. And then Sunak stands up in the House of Commons and says, no, no, we're maintaining support at the current level. And the journalists ask why, and it turns out that it's noises from the unions, it's noises from the TUC. So there's direct influence from the labour movement on national policymaking at the moment. And obviously, on on this particular point, on the furlough scheme, on the wage support scheme, on the employment retention scheme, whatever you call it, uh, the government isn't pushing back too hard. I don't think it thinks that it can. However, disgruntled various conservative MPs are on the back benches. But we're going to see the unions continuing to see how much they can shape the current policy climate. And I think these issues about a return to work are very interesting. The teaching unions can't go on strike because they can't hold a strike ballot in current circumstances, but they are going to be pushing health and safety legislation as as far as it will go. It's an extremely interesting time to be a a union rep who's uh, well informed about workplace health and safety issues. And I think we're going to see a lot of action on this front over the next few months.
0: And there does seem to be some coming together of opinion between parents from polling evidence. I mean, it's still a lot's going to change in the next weeks and months. But parents are very wary of these safety issues, not all, but some. And we've seen a bit of this in France, uh, where the schools have reopened, and the government has found it pretty hard to persuade many parents to let their kids go back to school. So it's not just a kind of, as it could be caricatured in the past by conservative opponents, uh, a narrow union, I'm all right, Jack, kind of health and safety politics. It's a really, I mean, to use Helen's word, it's much closer to a sort of existential health and safety politics, which then draws in a much wider coalition of people and interests and perspectives. I mean, it's a huge opportunity in that respect for Labour,
1: isn't it? And again, I think it goes beyond the narrow issues of workplace health and safety at the moment, that if you think about some of the other moves that Starmer is making, the public support for NHS workers, for frontline workers, for care workers, provides an opportunity for the Labour Party in a context where the public sector is less unpopular than it's been at various points in the past. There was that rather shrewd rhetorical move that Starmer made the other day around VE Day when he linked what he called the VE generation specifically to the people who are dying in care homes. It's a way of making a point. Of, I mean, Miliband tried to connect himself up to stories about the Second World War, stories about the public memory of the war, and it never really worked. Starmer is using the current crisis to try to put Labour in a in a distinctive position. And it's plausibly a promising thing to be doing, connecting up anxieties over the mounting death toll, especially of the most vulnerable in care homes, with the role of the NHS in the crisis, with the, the the fate of the generation that lived lived through the war, and then bundling this up with public concern about safety, about the schools, about what's going to happen as we relax the lockdown. It's potentially shrewd positioning. As Helen said earlier, it's, it's too early to say exactly how it's going to play out.
0: And it should be said he did it in the Daily Telegraph, which is another thing that you can't imagine happening under the previous leadership. Mm.
2: I think there is a vulnerability, though, for the Labour Party and Kastama and indeed for the, the public sector unions down this road, which m- might not take us so far from the past as we might think, because clearly there is very strong support for the NHS at the moment. One of the reasons why is it's because people in the NHS have continued to work through this crisis and kept the, the rest of us going. They're not the only people who've continued to work through this crisis and worked often in not very safe conditions, people working in supermarkets, bin men, delivery people, at the lot. And I think that a situation where the teaching unions in in particular can risk anyway appearing to set higher safety standards For themselves that must be met whilst other people often have earned less money than teachers have continued to work through shall we say not always safe conditions and kept us all alive and going i think that has actually got some of the older problems or at least older tensions for labor in straightforwardly backing the trade union position because the trade unions in this country have become quite public sector focus compared to what they used to be in the past and I, I just think it would be actually leaving aside party politics a quite destructive politics if we get into in which basically we say there's sets of people who have to keep working regardless of safety standards and then other people who must be protected at all costs against any risk whatsoever of the virus. I don't think it's good for us as a country and I don't think it will be good for the Labour Party.
0: Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. It is one of the oddities of this, and it has surprised me the extent to which parents who you would have thought might be pretty keen to get their kids back to school, do seem, not all of them by any means, but many of them to be on the side of the teachers in this. And Keir Starmer's new shadow chancellor, Annalise Dodds, has said that she wouldn't send her six-year-old back to school. And I don't think this is rhetorical. I assume she means it. But the way she phrased it was not because she worried about her child's safety but because she thought kids going back to school put other people in harm's way. And that, for now, I'm not sure it'll last, but for now, that's a surprisingly widespread sentiment. Something about schools at the moment that seems to, because I completely take your point, Helen, but it seems to stand outside of that argument about why would teachers be different from other people who've had to put themselves in harm's way.
2: Well, as I say, I think that different people have got different views upon this. I think that that...
0: (laughs) they do. I mean, we are now back in politics because different people do. uh, But there are a large number of people um, who seem to have a lot of sympathy with the teaching unions. And I'm surprised by that.
1: I mean, one reason why schools are different is because nobody thinks you can get children, especially young children, to observe disciplined social distancing practices over any significant length of time. That's the difference between children and adults, and it's an important difference. There also seems to be continuing uncertainty about the extent to which children can spread the virus or not. Different people are saying different things, but I think in that atmosphere of uncertainty, again, people are more likely to lean towards their more protective instincts, their desires to keep children at home. On the broader issue that Helen raised about the public sector unions versus everyone else, I mean, the unions are in a happy position at the moment, which is that they can plausibly present themselves as not being driven by narrow sectoral or sectional agendas. That's to say, most of the people who benefit from the government's job retention scheme are workers in the private sector, in the relatively ununionized private sector, the unions can make a, a better case than they've been able to for a long time that they're on the side of ordinary workers and ordinary people more generally. And if the focus on workplace health and safety issues in general is one that is being visibly driven by union activity... On the face of it, there's no reason why people are working in private sector firms, people working in supermarkets, people working wherever won't benefit also from that heightened attention to these issues. But obviously Helen is right that it depends on how the politics play out, and we could be seeing the discourse changing quite abruptly in weeks and months to come.
0: Chris, one of the things that seems to have come back into focus for some people because of the emergency measures that have been taken is the question of a universal basic income which was something that many people in the Corbyn project were very attracted to do you sense more wariness from the people around Starmer about getting drawn into the the UBI trap and some politicians including actually particularly in Wales and Scotland have been very vocal about saying that this shows that that's that's the way we are heading I mean that is sort of the direction of travel of history but you don't get that I'm not sensing from Starmer.
1: I think that's right. I mean, the the problem with the universal basic income people, and it's the problem with the land tax people, is they think it's the solution to every single problem. So any crisis will come along, and the universal basic income people will say, aha, now is the time to introduce universal basic income. And that's not entirely eccentric, because projects like a universal basic income, projects like a land tax, do reshape fairly fundamentally, aspects of government, public policy, social security, and so on. Um, And that's why the proposals can be wheeled out in any number of different contexts. It does make the people who push these schemes come across as a bit cranky, this idea that this one policy solution solves all difficulties. And I think that's not Starmer's style to hook his leadership up to a position that can plausibly come across as a bit cranky. It may very well be the direction of travel. We may very well see governments uh, pursuing policies that look quite a bit like universal basic income. Our colleague Peter Sloman has recently published a book called Transfer State that discusses 100 years of the British state engaged in policies that just involve switching sums of cash around to deal with various difficulties with household finance. And there's every reason to think that with universal credit and so on, that this, what he calls the the politics of the transfer state will will continue. And over time, it may look like something approximating a universal basic income scheme. Maybe that's where we're heading. But I don't think Starmer thinks there's any particular virtue in Labour being ostentatiously seen to drive that policy shift. It has this great big difficulty which is that universal basic income is ostentatiously about saying that you're going to pay people regardless of their productive contribution and there's still a lot of uh, evidence that ordinary voters the public opinion is not especially supportive of the idea that people should get these kinds of benefits regardless of public contribution that benefits should be so comprehensively delinked from questions of work
2: i agree with um, with chris on starmer that's not where where he's going And part of the reason is because the electoral politics of that are, I think, pretty difficult from Labour's point of of view. I think more generally that a lot depends on where we're going economically in the medium term on what the employment fallout of the crisis turns out to be. And it's reasonably clear so far that the biggest hits have come in the, the service sector. If you look in the United States, where you're actually, you know, producing 30 million plus people who've become unemployed in the space of about seven weeks. You know, the vast proportion of those jobs losses have come in the service sector. In this country, we've had some protection from such a sharp rise in unemployment by the furlough scheme. So I think that the question really is: Are there sections of the service sector that are going to really struggle to come back? And is that going to lead to significant changes in levels of unemployment beyond the immediate crisis? So if we are going back to a sustained era of pretty high unemployment, then I think that the political discussion about universal um, basic income will be taken quite seriously, though, for the same reasons as Chris. I think that you still have to put some caveats in. But until we're clearer... What the employment damage, the medium-term employment damage of this crisis is, then I, I can't see that any politicians are going to be want to be particularly, you know, specific about what their economic remedies on the income side are going to be.
0: But if the damage is, as you say, very sectoral, I and mean, certain sectors are hit much harder than other sectors, is there going to be a plausible political move towards something that's universal? Is is not the pressure going to be to find particular solutions for those particular parts of the economy that have been worst hit
2: i mean it could be but i still think that that depends on what this what the scale um, of the fallout you know is because you know the basic drifting, i mean we are a
0: service economy so yeah, yeah
2: exactly the basic drift in western economies for a long time has been towards services and that actually you know accelerated after the recovery from the, the 2008 crash so We don't really have any idea any longer how to have an economy that doesn't involve lots of people being employed in the service sector. And the service sector, obviously, is far from one sector. It's a great deal of multiplicity in the the services sector. So I think that if we're looking at a situation where actually quite a lot of things are just never coming back, then that really does change the politics of the economic landscape.
0: So let's finish with Brexit. It's weird we haven't talked about Brexit for such a long time. Um, And Helen, you said, and I was surprised to hear you say it, I'm sure you may be right, but that Starmer is trying to move on and accept it. The evidence for that was him saying this week that he's not pushing for an extension, he wants the government to get on with it. But that also looks completely tactical, or strategic even, because he thinks that the government's not going to be able to get on with it. And so he's boxing them in. And sooner or later, this is going to return to the centre of British politics. I mean, it has to, because decisions will have to be made. And it was thought that Starmer maybe had a weakness there, that that's where his history over the last parliament would catch up with him. But he must presumably also now think that the government's position is much weaker than it was two months ago, because it's just going to find it much harder to deliver on its promises.
2: Well, I'm not sure about that because I think that you could argue that actually that they, where, where the Brexit negotiations are concerned that the government's position is actually significantly s- strengthened by what has happened rather than weakened in that it will be easier in a state of general economic crisis to absorb, uh, move towards a WTO break with the, with the EU in the absence of a new trade agreement And that I still think that the the government has invested a a lot of political credibility, you know, going to the point of putting this no extension to the transition into legislation to withdraw from it that position very readily. Now, you can say that on this, that on everything, all bets are off. But I think that there's enough evidence coming from the, the EU side and some of the things that are coming out from Macron's office that suggests that they are working on the assumption that the British government is not going to extend the transition. If you look at the politics of Brexit from the point of view of of the government, including in the context of this this new crisis, there are very considerable risks to extending the transition that haven't gone away, not least because now in the context of this crisis, I think the government will think that the people who are opposed to Brexit will see a, a renewed opportunity in trying to stop it by extending the transition and then arguing that in the context of the crisis and the ongoing crisis, that the issue can't has to go back on, on the back burner and can't, can't possibly be dealt with. So in that sense, I think that it's easier for them, for the government than it was to say that we negotiate an agreement by the end of the year, or the transition comes to an end without one.
0: But to put the other side of it, I mean, I assume what Starmer is essentially saying is you you broke it, you own it. Um, So whatever happens is now on you. And yeah, it's true that the current situation makes it easier because of the things that the government is already doing to move to a no trade agreement exit. But the difference is the government is currently doing these things, not of its own volition. It's doing them because of either an act of God or an act of China, however you want to see it. But that one will be their choice. And I just think that assuming that we are going to be facing quite a few years of economic hardship, it will be much easier for the opposition to paint that hardship as the government's choice than under current circumstances where the government is clearly doing things reluctantly, but because it has to.
2: But I think they've got to put the EU um, politics back into this. And whether the people who voted for this government because that they supported Brexit and they came from you know across the political spectrum in, in order to do so. That's why Labour lost or was part of the reason why Labour lost the Red Wall seats, whether they really want to see a situation in which the government remains trapped in a Brexit limbo that is caused by what risks looking like a, a near permanent transition. And from the point of view of the, the EU, negotiating this trade arrangement with Britain is even less of a priority compared to the other problems that it's got to deal with, not least being right back in the middle of a full-scale Eurozone crisis again. And so I think that it will be not that difficult for the government to say a line's got to be drawn under this. We either negotiate an agreement by the end of the year and they will be able to use the argument that if we don't do that, we will be sucked back into dealing with an EU that is um, caught up in the Eurozone crisis and, and Britain still being in the EU and still having to make payments under the transition arrangements of getting caught up in the risk of bailout politics within the EU. So I think that it's always the case with Brexit that you've got to think about what's going on here in relation to what's going on within the internal politics of the, the EU. And I think that if you add in the fact that in one sense at least the government's hand has been strengthened and all the problems that Brexit caused the Labour Party between 2016 and 2019, that Starmer's instinct is that he wants to draw a line under it and say that for Labour to move on and for Labour to give itself a chance of winning the next election, then it cannot be spending its time redividing itself over Brexit.
0: Chris, what do you think Starmer is doing by saying, get on with it?
1: I agree pretty much with what Helen has said there. I think that Starmer was so closely identified with the policy of pushing for a second referendum that did the Labour Party no good in the recent election, that he has no interest in associating with Labour under his leadership with that kind of politics. So I think Starmer saying, get on with it, you know, we won't be the ones pushing for any particular outcome. We'll just watch you and then no doubt, you know, criticise you, even when it goes wrong. The politics seem to me entirely comprehensible there. More generally, I think Starmer's gamble is that it's 1992. That's to say that the government's just been re-elected. It's doing pretty well in the polls, but there are various sources of crisis and difficulties it's getting into. And I think Starmer's is gambling that we have in the not too distant future some moment like when the pound crashed out of the RM that everything suddenly changed and the Labour Party was able to get very extensive polling leads against a background of a general loss of confidence in the government's competence. And that could come from a lot of different sources. Over the current crisis, we're seeing week by week, the public opinion slowly shift on whether it thinks the government is handling the crisis adequately. There's reason to think that, perhaps not overwhelming reason, but there's reason to think that this trend may continue into the future. We have any number of decisions that the government will have to make in the not too distant future that are going to be very difficult decisions that are going to generate a lot of opposition we have a prime minister who is obviously not fully recovered to health. Uh, if you see Boris Johnson at his press conferences or in the House of Commons, he's still a substantially diminished figure. And Starmer, I think, to this extent, is keeping a lower profile than he might otherwise choose to adopt. He's giving the government space to make its own mistakes. And the, the gamble is that as public confidence in the government falls, the Labour Party will be able to hoover up that shifting support because the Labour Party isn't actively repelling portions of the electorate, which is what it was doing during the Corbyn period. And my recent remarks are focused on aspects of the current coronavirus crisis, but obviously issues about the question of whether or not to ask for an extension to the current uh, transition period, what kind of deal to agree with the European Union, and what may happen if we do leave without a deal. I agree with Helen that leaving without a deal in this circumstance of generalised crisis is a very different matter from leaving without a deal in otherwise smooth, otherwise normal circumstances. Uh, But I think this is what Starmer is is gambling on and we'll see whether the gamble pays off.
0: And I promise this is going to be my last question. You can answer it as quickly as you like. If it is 1992 again, does that mean that therefore Keir Starmer is most among his predecessors, like John Smith, the man who would have been prime minister if tragedy hadn't intervened, that he's not Ed Miliband, he's not Tony Blair, actually, he's John Smith?
1: We can can find analogies, we can find disanalogies. I mean, I think Starmer is like Smith in the sense that he's not obviously a figure from the left of the party. Smith was very much a figure from the old right of the party, but who nevertheless commanded quite wide support across the party, and I think that's where Starmer wants to be. In a sense, if he has a natural home in the party, it's with the soft left rather than with John Smith's old right. But I, th- I think he certainly aspires to being reasonably comfortable with the Labour Party, with the, with the Parliamentary Party, with the trade union leadership, with the National Executive Committee, with the party machine. Smith had that command over the, the breadth of the party, the breadth of the Labour movement. That, I think, is an analogy. Also, Smith and um, Starmer weren't flashy operators and they didn't try to be so i think we can draw analogies no doubt there are disanalogies too
2: the analogy in relation to competence i think really does you know hold and the fact that government's been in you know, office for a long period of time and governments do become more incompetent as entropy takes over in governments the longer that they stay there i think that the two things that make it different is first of all scotland that was just simply never going to be an issue for labor in the 1990s and indeed um the fact that Smith was a, a Scot helped that anyway. And the second is is, is that Labour's victory in 1997 also required the Liberal Democrats to be an effective party that was able to take considerably more seats in 1997 than it did in 1992. So the story of Labour's recovery in the 90s is very much tied to the fate of the, the Liberal Democrats. And there's, I would say, far fewer reasons Looking at things now, to think that we're seeing a a Liberal Democrat recovery as well as a Labour recovery. I do think we'll see a Labour recovery, but I don't think it will be readily sufficient given the Scottish problem and given that we're not going to see, I think, a Liberal Democrat recovery.
0: As always, you can find details in our show notes of reading and other material, including the book that Chris recommended there by Peter Sloman. We've got a lot coming up on talking politics. We're going to be discussing India. We're going to be talking about what's gone on in Europe around the Eurozone and the decision of the German Constitutional Court. And we're going to be talking about how newspapers are struggling to cover this crisis. All coming up over the next few weeks. Do please join us for all of that. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics. Do you sense more wariness from the Starmer team? I don't know team is the wrong word. Sounds like a Radio 4 (laughs) panel game.